you know, in, in 1989, at the peak of the former East Germany, the spy agency there, the Stasi, used one snitch for every 60 people in the country. And um, today, the NSA manages to spy on the whole planet by using one spy for every 10,000 people that they put under surveillance. And the way that they were able to affect that two and a half order of magnitude uh, productivity improvement over a mere generation was that they they rely on the private sector to do the spying for us. So if you look at how PRISM and Upstream and those other big NSA programs work, they are using the services, they are tapping into the services that we use voluntarily to harvest data on us. Same with location privacy and all those other mass surveillance issues that we're grappling with. And, you know, the it's a bit like, you know, in the Cultural Revolution, the the People's Liberation Army would haul away your dad and shoot him in the head for being a dissident, and then they'd send you the bill for the bullet. And, and you know, what we've got now is they spy on everything we do and, and put us to enormous risk, and then we pay the bill for it. Welcome to Fringe FM, the podcast that explores the edges of human understanding and looks at the technologies, trends, and societal norms shaping our collective future. Here, the world's top minds share their insights and predictions on the convergence, direction, and ethics of exponential technologies transforming life as we know it. You can learn more and stay up to date at fringe.fm. When was the last time you checked Facebook? Have you been on Instagram today? What about running a Google search? Regardless of what you're doing online, you're being monitored. Our privacy is being slowly stripped away, bill by bill, regulation by regulation. Today, we have one of the foremost thinkers in the field, not just of privacy, but of the future of humanity. We've got Cory Doctorow on the program. Cory's a best-selling science fiction author, blogger, activist, that's also the co-editor of the popular web blog, Boing Boing. <laughs> Great name. He's a consultant for the Electronic Frontier Foundation, writes best-selling sci-fi books in his spare time, holds honorary doctorate degrees in computer science from the Open University in the UK, and he's an MIT Media Lab research affiliate. Several of Corey's award-winning novels include Little Brother, Homeland, and Pirate Cinema. Most of his books look into the dystopian futures that we're headed towards, especially when it comes to privacy, net neutrality, and the rights of the individual. He's also co-founded an open-source peer-to-peer software company, OpenCola, and is very, very involved with the open-source movement. In today's episode, we discuss the big problems with government regulation and how GDPR both helps and hurts the future of the internet, how your privacy is bought and sold well beyond what you already know, the future of surveillance capitalism and how to solve it, why corruption and special interests are jeopardizing our future, and how a new copyright law introduced by the European Union could crush the internet, quite literally. And now, without further ado, I give you Corey Doctorow. You probably know I'm big on biohacking and trying to make myself the best I can be. That's why I'm excited about what the guys at Neurohacker Collective and Daniel Schmachtenberger, who was previously on the podcast, are doing. They're some of the smartest biohackers on the planet, and their Qualia line of brain-enhancing nootropics make it obvious why. You guys can get 15% off any order, or with a subscription, 50% off and 15% off every future order by going to disruptors.fm slash qualia, that's Q-U-A-L-I-A, and using coupon code disruptors at disruptors we're big on health and biotech for a reason it amplifies everything disruptors.fm slash qualia use coupon code disruptors and now let's get on with the program we choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things not because they are easy but because they are hard so Corey, you're a big advocate of of net neutrality and the future of the internet and we're getting into an era where that's becoming increasingly challenging so i want i want to hear a little bit on your thoughts of EU and how they both helped and hurt the internet today. Yeah. So I think that 
the best way to understand what's going on with the EU is that the normal policy deadlock over industrial regulation, which is that we have, uh, we're living in an era of monopoly capitalism where businesses really call the shots when it comes to regulating them for lots of reasons. Like one, of course, is that when you only have like four or five companies left, then everyone who's qualified to regulate them either is currently working for them or has recently worked for them. And so it becomes very difficult as a practical matter to, uh, to find impartial regulators. And then on top of that, because they have so much money, they get really good at, at kind of influencing the policy outcomes so that everything reflects their priorities. And, and sometimes the first priority of a business is to have no regulation. That's often their first priority. But their second priority is often to have as much regulation as possible and that it be very expensive so that new entrants to the market can't, um, can't afford it. And, you know, we've seen a lot of that in the EU where, where there's just so much very expensive compliance regimes that are popping up that it, it forms an effective moat around the businesses of companies like Google and Facebook. But what is a little different from, from that analysis or what makes that analysis a little bit more nuanced is that there's also a trade war underway. In a tweet, he wrote, trade wars are good and easy to win. That the EU, which, you know, is broadly speaking, like kind of neoliberal and, and um, you know, not, not particularly nationalistic, is nevertheless increasingly of the view that, you know, they should be promoting European businesses because uh, U.S. monopolism has created a, like a kind of hegemony online for U.S. online firms. And that's come at the expense of self-determination and economic activity in the EU. So we do get some actual regulations that form, you know, really critical uh, uh, barrier to the traditional way of doing business in the EU. And I think the GDPR is a good example of that. So there's lots of stuff in the GDPR, but to just think about the consent and data gathering and data handling stuff, the way that it, it's meant to work, I think, the best way to understand it is that the GDPR is a way of the uh, EU putting its fingers on the scales in favor of product managers at the, to the detriment of um, general counsels at companies. So, you know, no product manager ever said, you know what this, this amazing new service we've just developed needs? It needs uh, 20,000 words of legal boilerplate that no one will ever read. That'll really improve the quality of the service. So it's the general counsel who does that, right? And the general counsel sits down and says, look, if we can just get people to like coercively, abusively agree to 20,000 words of absolute legal garbage that says, you know, by being dumb enough to use this service, you agree that at any time we want, we can come to your house and punch your grandmother and make long distance calls and eat all the food in your fridge and, you know, wear your underwear, then, um, you know, who knows? Like maybe someday someone will buy the company just for all the shitty agreements that we've convinced uh, randos on the internet to click I agree to. And so when the product manager goes in and says, well, it makes our product less elegant, the general counsel says, what effect does it have on user numbers? Where's the bottom line impact? And the product manager has to kind of shrug and say, I guess it doesn't have one. So now the way that the GDPR works is that every single clause that you want your uh, user to quote unquote agree to has to actually have some meaningful pretext of uh, agreement, which is to say every clause needs to be presented separately in plain language that non-native English speaker could read and make sense of and reasonably be expected to predict what that clause means for the data that you're collecting. And then they have to click OK. They have to move a, a slider from I don't agree to I do agree and then click OK for each one of those clauses. And so, you know, for your basic common or garden internet service with 20,000 words of garbagey bullshit boilerplate, that is a 45 minute onboarding process. And so what that does 
is it lets the product manager walk into the boardroom and show a chart in which user conversions and retentions have gone from 100% to 0% or 10% to 0%, that basically everyone's jumped ship. No one has completed the onboarding process. And that allows the product manager to turn to the, to the legal director or the GC and say, pick the one to three things that we absolutely must have users agree to, and we're going to ask them to agree to those things, and everything else has to be thrown away. Now, right now, I just came back from Europe. I was just at the Edinburgh Festival, and it was my first time in Europe since the GDPR came down. And no one, none of the American services are compliant with this. Overwhelmingly, what they do is they throw a, you know, click here to agree, click here to see more. And when you click on that, usually you get a timeout, you know, um, uh, the, um, the Verizon Oath service, which is, you know, the remnants of Yahoo, has absolutely the worst version of this. And I think what the general counsels are betting is that European prosecutors and regulators are just not serious about this thing. They can't even believe that they would be forced to ma obtain meaningful consent before spying on you. They think that just the pretense is fine. And the GDPR provides for stonking huge fines for noncompliance, something like 5% of global turnover per day of noncompliance. So, you know, 20 days in and your 100% of your annual revenues is now owed to the regulator and fine. 40 days in and it's next year's revenue too. 60 days in and it's three years revenue and you're out of business. Is it per, is it so, per day? I thought it was 5% I, of all annual. So it, let's say Google Maps. I think it's per day. I think it's per day of non-compliance after being put on notice. I'm not sure exactly, but it's a whackingly great number. Hey guys, Matt here. Corey was a little bit off on the GDPR fines in terms of the overall percentage. Not surprising considering how complicated the regulations were or the regulations are. So we decided we'll just cut in a little clip that explains a little bit more about GDPR, how it works, and why companies need to beware. The administrative fines could reach up to 10 million euros or up to 2% of the total annual turnover of the organization of the preceding year, whichever is higher. These fines shall be paid in case of the infringement of the obligations of the controller or processor, or of the obligations of the certification body, or of the obligations of the monitoring body. Higher administrative fines that could reach up to 20 million euros, or up to 4% of the total turnover of the organization of the preceding year, whichever is higher, will be imposed in case of the infringement of the basic principles of processing such as the subject consent, or infringement of the data subject rights. And just to put this number in perspective, Google did $109 billion in 2017. A 4% fine would be $4.36 billion, roughly, per year, every single year that, that Google or other large tech companies are non-compliant. That's carrying a pretty big stick, so to speak. We'll have to see how effective it is at reining in companies like Google. And for a company as big as Google or Oath, they probably are out of compliance in 20 ways. So this is, this is um, catastrophic for surveillance capitalism. And uh, if they actually muster the intestinal fortitude to enforce the rules as they said they will, and as they've shown at least some willingness to do thus far, you know, where we see the big antitrust, $5 billion antitrust judgment against um, Google for uh, Android uh, search dominance and so on, that I, I think that, that it will affect a major sea change, that businesses can't afford to ignore Europeans, even if they say, well, we're going to freeze Europeans out of the system, then they still end up with um, people who are accidental Europeans who get caught in, Europeans who are abroad, uh, Europeans who they don't accurately geofence or whatever. And if they have any assets in the EU, they're going to see themselves in major trouble. And even if they don't, they're going to end up potentially where Yahoo did back in the old days when Yahoo said, we're not going to enforce the, the French and German bans on selling Nazi memorabilia in Yahoo auctions. 
which was once a thing. <laughs> and uh, we're, and so then eventually it got to the point where Yahoo executives couldn't go to France or Germany or eventually the EU for fear of uh, being arrested at the border. <laughs> and so, you know, that's a thing that I think by and large they want to avoid. So I think that the EU is going to make a really big uh, dent in, if they actually manage to enforce. Now, on the other hand, there are a couple of other big initiatives that have the opposite effect that it just strengthen the power of the big digital giants. So the European Union is revisiting its copyright directive for the first time since 2001. So it's been 17 years since there's been a refresh of European copyright. A lot's happened in the last 17 years. It's a long overdue. And the new copyright directive is this big omnibus bill that's, that's um, just full of like largely inoffensive technical updates to copyright. And that has so many stakeholders that it's certain to pass. They're, they're not going to not pass the new directive. And they had previously considered a couple of very controversial proposals that were bounced because all of the independent research that the commission did and all of the academics and scholars who looked at it just said it they were crazily bad ideas. And on GDPR day, the day the GDPR was announced, this German MEP who was involved in the drafting for the legislative committee uh, named Axel Vos slipped it back in while everyone's back was turned. And the way that he did it, it was going to go to the legislative committee who were almost certainly going to say, okay, well, this text is ready to go. And the stuff that comes out of the legislative committee almost never gets debated by the European Parliament. It gets an up or down vote because the European Parliament only sits sporadically, the whole parliament, and they have so much business in front of them. You know, it's like all of the regulatory business for 27 countries that they just... Um, they just don't want to debate this stuff. They want the committees to come up with uh, their best shot, and then they vote up or down. And um, the two clauses that Vos slipped in, the first one is Article 13. And it's an absolutely insane copyright rule that says that if you have a platform that allows members of the public to make a work available that might be copyrighted, so that could be as little as a tweet, or even like a Minecraft skin that they stick on their avatar, or any sound file or video file or still image or software code. Basically, if you allow people to make a single byte of information visible to the rest of the world, then you have to implement a copyright filter where you allow anyone in the world to upload millions of copyrighted works at a time. And you have to make fingerprints of those works. And if a user tries to submit a work that looks like a near or an exact match for any of these uploaded works, you have to block them from being made available to the public. So there's a version of this that already exists. It's called Content ID. Uh, Google uses it for Yahoo videos. It costs $60 million to build. It only filters the soundtrack of videos. And it's a dumpster fire. It overblocks so much stuff that is not copyrighted. It underblocks so much stuff that is copyrighted and everybody hates it. And no one knows how you would build one of these for everything, for text or whatever. And at least Google's has got like some small penalties for people who falsely claim copyright in works that they don't own, either because they just have an automatic system that claims copyrights or because they're malicious actors. You know, the king of Thailand used fake copyright claims to suppress a video of a popular uprising in Thailand, anti-monarchist uprising in Thailand. Uh, British skinheads used fake copyright claims to block LGBT positive materials. It's really like a terrible system that invites abuse. And we're going to make this for all content in the EU. And it's going to raise the cost of starting a competitor to a business like YouTube or, or WordPress or Twitter or Facebook or 
Minecraft, it's going to raise the cost of doing that by something like three or four hundred million dollars. That's just going to be the, the filter, the cost of building the filter. And the alternative will be that you subscribe to a service that does this uh, for you. So we have a few of those. There's like an American company that does that for audio. It costs $50,000 a month for a small business to do that. And in order to do it, European businesses are going to have to send all of Europeans' communications to America to be judged before other Europeans can see it, which is like so out of compliance with the GDPR, it, it is baffling. So that's Article 13. And then Article 11 says that you can't link to a news story without a paid license from the news site. But it doesn't defy what a new, define what a news story or a, a link is. And there's 28 member states that each get to define their own version of it. And you've got to somehow be in compliance. This is all being driven by the big German newspaper families who are like the Motion Picture Association of America for Europe. And, you know, th I think that their, their plan is that, of course, nobody can comply with these batshit regimes. And instead, what's going to happen is everybody who uh, represents one of these big digital monopolists will sit down around a boardroom table with the big European content owners and they'll hammer out an agreement that constitutes the, um, the kind of minimum viable agreement that everyone's mafia happy tax. with. Hmm? A mafia tax. Yeah, like a little mafia tax. That's, that's, that's right. And that, you know, the fact that all of the potential European competitors for this, who might give Europeans a way to talk to other Europeans without being mediated by Americans, that it'll kill them all in their cradle or, or strangle the ones that currently exist. Like, you know, Czech, uh, Czechia, Czech Republic has a homegrown uh, Google competitor that, that people use for searching. And there's like a Bulgarian Instagram competitor that's really big. All of those businesses just go out of business like on day one of this being uh, enacted. And of course, you know, our ability to link to news will be limited to our use of uh, big platforms. And, uh, and those platforms are overwhelmingly American owned. And so, you know, this is just a, a catastrophe all around. Now, we got 1 million people in the couple of weeks between this being announced and it being voted on, we got 1 million people to, in Europe to write to their MEPs. And they uh, passed a motion that requires this to be uh, debated when it goes up for the vote in September. It'll probably be September the 11th. We'll probably see the final text on September the 5th or 7th. Basically, like all European, major European policy fights take place over either July the 4th weekend, Labor Day, or September the 11th, which may or may not be deliberate, but certainly inconvenient if you uh, are a European like me, but you live in America and work for an American NGO. It makes things a little, little tricky. But, you know, I, I have some confidence that we'll, like, get something done here. It's... Uh, it's so manifestly bad. And, you know, there's a European election coming up and none of those MEPs are going to be campaigning based on copyright. Like no one says, vote for me. I made Article 13 a reality. Whereas lots of people campaign against MEPs by saying, don't vote for that jerk. He broke the internet. And so I, I really think we have a good chance of making it happen, even though the constituencies for this are so powerful. Like Paul McCartney denounced us, right? We're, which is bananas because like if the Cavern Club had had a filter like this, Paul McCartney could have not performed any of those R&B and Skiffle songs when he was launching his career. Even though it was fair use, the filter wouldn't have been able to figure that out. Is it fair to say that the EU is tr at least trying to protect what it views as the future and civil liberties while the U.S. is trying? I mean, the way I think about it is the U.S. just passed SESTA or whatever it is. Stop child sex trafficking so that we can monitor you and have all of your information, privacy, etc. And this, yeah. is, this is a lot of what you write about. What's the direction where we're headed? Is there, is there a way that this works out well? 
Yeah, it's not. So like, it's not monotonic, right? It, in, in both of those cases, in both the EU and the US case, the P parties involved are kind of a mixed bag, right? There's different factions that prevail when different sta uh, stakes are on the table. Sometimes the, the fight, the people on the other side are the copyright industries and you some factions come to bear. Sometimes it's the telecoms industries and other factions come to bear. Another good example of a European policy that really like looked good on paper but fell apart in implementation. So the big uh, platforms all had this pretense that every sale they made in Europe took place in Luxembourg where there's no sales tax, right? And so they all incorporated these Luxembourgeois uh, subsidiaries or Luxembourgian subsidiaries, and um, they recorded the transactions there so they didn't have to they didn't have to charge sales tax, which meant that like if you were Waterstones, which is the big British book chain, and you sold an ebook to a, uh, a British person, you had to charge 20% VAT. But if you were Amazon and you booked that transaction from amazon.co.uk, you booked, booked it in Luxembourg, you didn't have to charge VAT. So this is obviously BS, right? And, and the starvation of the European states, British states of their, of their uh, just tax revenues has meant enormous immiseration. It's fueled nativist sentiment and anti-immigrant sentiment. It's been a, a, a real crisis. So the European Union has like a super legit interest in undoing the shenanigan. But the thing that they arrived at for it is that anyone who sold anything to Europeans would have to uh, gather two non-contradictory pieces of personal identifying information that identified where that European resided. It couldn't be credit card information. So it had to be something else, scans of ID or whatever. And then they had to figure out what the VAT rate was, what the tax rate was for that good in that territory, which like completely varied by good and by territory across all 28 European states. And then they had to, to do the bookkeeping and remit every quarter if they had an, uh, even one penny in VAT that they'd collected from that territory. So for Amazon, that's just writing a script, right? Like they, they get a couple of programmers together, they spend a month looking at European tax codes, they write that script and they're just done. And yeah, they lose that little competitive advantage, but whatever. On the other hand, you know, I have my own ebook store where I act as a retailer for my publishers. So I, I sell the copyrighted works that my publishers have bought the right to publish for me, and I give them the 70% that Amazon would normally give them. I keep the 30% that Amazon would normally keep. And then they take the 25% that would be my royalty and they send it back to me. So I double my royalties by doing this. It's really cool. So as a European, as I was until a couple of years ago, for that store, every quarter, I had to spend 700 pounds in accounting fees to remit 17 pounds in VAT. So that basically meant that I was losing 683 pounds in compliance costs every quarter on my modest electronic copyrighted work store. But I could get away from that just by only selling my books through Amazon, because then Amazon would keep the 30% that I would normally get, and they would do my tax paperwork for me. And, um, you know, it's pretty obvious that like Amazon's first preference was let us have this amazing competitive advantage. That means that we don't have to charge VAT while everybody else does. But their second preference for really obvious reasons was make the regulation as expensive to comply with as possible because we, we've got economies of scale and lots of in-house coding chops and you are going to have to come and sell through us if you want to do business. So how do we handle that in a world where it is becoming increasingly monopolized and it is becoming at least prior to GDPR, increasingly privacy destroying. Yeah. How, how, so, yeah. so sure. So you know how you parallel park a car where like you head in as far as you can and when you get as far as you can, then you, then you reverse and then you head in and then you reverse and then you head in and then you reverse. 
you've got these this like one axis of motion, one axis of freedom, and you use as much slack as you have, and then you and then you use the other axis and use as much slack as you have there. And each time you open a little slack to nudge yourself into where you want to be. So the the policy levers we have, the axes of motion that we have for uh, changing political outcomes. Larry Lessig identified them in his book Code and Other Laws of Cyberspace. We have code, what's technologically possible. We have law, what's legal. We have markets, what's profitable. We have norms, what's socially acceptable. And each one of those changes the others. So things that are not technically possible can't be profitable, right? If you can't actually do them, you can't make any money doing them. When you invent a new technology, you change what's profitable. What's profitable changes what's socially acceptable. So, you know, these dumb license agreements became socially acceptable. They didn't exist and then they did. And they, they started existing because they were so profitable that companies uh, kind of did PR campaigns for them. They put them everywhere uh, and it became normalized to the point that we were all, all accepting them. So to undo this process, we have to use the same thing. We're going to parallel park a car with four axes of motion, code, law, norms, and markets. So we take whichever one has the most slack in it right now. So norms look like a good one. People are getting pissed about monopolies. And so we take that norm, we maximize it. We get as many people as angry as possible about monopolies by flagging up the real risks in, a, in public communications. And then we channel that anger into things like laws, where we go back and we say we want limits on monopolies. So the FTC has opened a, 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 a docket on limiting digital monopolists. We take that docket and we go to town on it. We, we write really good substantive comments. EFF is working up a set. And then we get tons of public comment in support of it. We make it an election issue. And so then we make it a, a legal question. Well, if we can change what's legal, then we'll change what's profitable because we'll start to create penalties for, for anti-competitive activities. And that'll change the instincts of companies. And as we change what's, uh, what's profitable and what's legal, we weaken the power of the monopolists and we can make new technologies. So, you know, Facebook started by making tools that allowed face, uh, MySpace users to continuously exfiltrate their MySpace data into Facebook. So you didn't have to choose, oh, I'm going to leave MySpace where all my friends are and become a Facebook user. You became a Facebook user and Facebook would go and scrape MySpace on your behalf and put your MySpace communications in your Facebook context. You could reply to them there. And when you did it, push them back out to MySpace with a footer that basically read, why the fuck are you still using MySpace? Come over to Facebook and had a link. And so um, it, it, that kind of technological possibility right now is illegal. Facebook has successfully secured court judgments that, to the effect that violating terms of service to do that is illegal. There's a case called Power Ventures where they did that. But if we can get Congress to pass laws that legalize that kind of adversarial interoperability, then we can have new profitable businesses, right? Businesses that treat Facebook as like a reservoir of nutrient to drive a new business with. They've pooled up all this diffused users that once were once in millions of places. They put them all together and they've sorted them by interest. And now as a new business, you can go in and laser target those users and give them the power to leave Facebook without actually having to leave it all together. And you can use Facebook as a part in a new product by adversarially interoper uh, interoperating with them, which will weaken Facebook which will open the door for more legal changes, which will change what is normatively possible. So we no longer say, oh yeah, it's completely legit that the person organizing my kid's Little League game would require me to give all of my personal information to Mark Zuckerberg in order to find out what time it is, right? So then we make these normative shifts and we make more legal shifts and we make more financial shifts and we make more technological shifts. And that 
feedback loop as we back and fill and back and fill. And when we hit a wall with one, we get as far as we can with law, we start to use norms, we get as far as we can with norms, we start to use markets, and we get as far as we can go with markets, we hack new code, and we just keep going around and around and around until we make the change. Do you think, with the U.S. at least, monopoly is pretty much purely driven by the price a consumer has to pay? That's how the U.S. seems to define it, which is problematic in an era of free everything. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's, a, that's like um, not a controversial statement. It's the, it's the actual official policy. You know, since Reagan, the, um, the Chicago School of Economists came together and they said the one legitimate interest to produce these like Pareto optimal outcomes for antitrust is to uh, regulate businesses that conspire to fix a maximum or minimum consumer facing price. So not uh, a, a minimum supplier facing price or a maximum supplier face price facing price or not market cornering or not collusion or any of those other things that had historically been in the wheelhouse of antitrust regulation. It was this one narrow thing. And, you know, the tech industry is kind of ground zero for this for a couple of reasons. But one is that they were the, uh, the first industry to be born after the, this rule change. And they were scrappy upstarts. And so they didn't hire uh, white shoe lawyers with 30 years of corporate experience who had you know, been mentally scarred a million times by, by overstepping the, uh, the bounds of antitrust and, and who would crush any suggestion of doing something anti-competitive. And instead they hired their friends fresh out of Stanford Law. And those kids, They'd never been scarred by antitrust enforcement actions. And when someone around the boardroom table made a nakedly anti-competitive suggestion, they were like, yeah, that sounds good. Let's do it. And they were kind of trying to find the perimeter of antitrust enforcement in post-Reagan America, and they never found it. And, you know, everybody else, like, eventually figured out what the tech industry figured out early, which is why we have, like, you know, two agribusiness companies and, like, five banks and four record labels and five movie studios and whatever. Everybody figured this stuff out eventually. But tech was the first one because they just happened to be in the right place at the right time. And, you know, when the uh, antitrust enforcement rule became do anything except this, no matter how monopolistic it is, everybody figured out how to be as monopolistic as possible without doing that. And so now we have all the predatory activities that you see, including predatory pricing and uh, squeezing your suppliers and declaring everyone to be a contractor so that you don't have to pay any wages and all the anti-competitive things that firms do, uh, including, you know, profit shifting and, and so on. And um, they, they are able to do this with impunity because they know where their third rail is and they just steer clear of it. <laughs> you know, that's why, like, the only antitrust enforcement you've seen of any meaningful scope in the last several years was when uh, Apple and the major publishers colluded to price fix a minimum price for eBooks. And everything else is fair game. So you write a lot about privacy and the, the destruction of civil liberties, primarily from government. What's your background? How did you get into this? And how do you, what you see in the world reflected in the, the realities that you create? Well, you know, I was raised in the in protest movements. My, my folks were, uh, you know, trade union advocates and pro-abortion advocates and anti-nuclear proliferation advocates. And, and they were involved in party politics, left party politics in Canada when I was growing up. And so I was involved in that and in, in coalitions, street protests, that kind of thing. And I was involved in that as well. And, you know, at the same time, my dad was a computer scientist. So we had computers around the house. And I, you know, I was lucky enough to be born in 1971 and to have a like a, a teletype terminal in the house in 1977. And then an Apple II Plus in 1979, when my dad was head of computer science at his local high school, and so on. And, uh, you know, that was, uh, 
and and so that meant that I got like really involved in computers and po politics were still a big issue. And I started a software company just like everybody in the 90s during the dot-com bubble. And uh, we got involved in lots of uh, legal threats because we were doing peer-to-peer -peer open source software. And because all of our programmers had been involved in the cult of the dead cow and other early hacker groups, they knew the Electronic Frontier Foundation people. And I'd read about them in Bruce Sterling's book, The Hacker Crackdown. Uh, and uh, you know, Bruce is a cyberpunk science fiction writer, but also a tech journalist. And he'd written a seminal book about the founding of the technological civil liberties movement. And so I got more and more involved with EFF. And I eventually quit the company I'd started and went to work for EFF and then became their European director. And I kind of learned on the job the way I did learn to be a software programmer as well. I, I never really had much formal training. And, you know, it's very characteristic of that era. You know, before we figured out how to credential uh, the Internet and, and its surrounding, uh, its surrounding uh, disciplines, almost everybody was self-taught, you know, pretty much by definition because no one else was around to teach you. And then you got into writing and became a prolific sci-fi writer? No, that was all happening at the same time. I, uh, I started selling short stories when I was 17. And then, um, you know, I sold my first novel while I was doing the startup. And then I went to work for EFF while I was in the publication pipeline and was writing my second and third novels while I was European director. And so I was traveling 27 days a month. You know, I'd, I'd, I wasn't even plugging in my fridge anymore because it was costing me 10 bucks a month just to keep my ice cubes frozen. And I ended up... Um, uh, learning how to write when I was really busy, which was a really important skill. So eventually I, I quit EFF for a time to write full time. And then I, I got increasingly anxious about sitting out all the important stuff that was going on while I was just on the sidelines. And so I got back involved as an activist with EFF. But, you know, the, that skill that I learned of how to be uh, super, you know, super productive and to, to be able to write without any wind up, to just be able to, to go straight into it and say like, you know, I have 20 minutes, time to sit down and write. That was really important for everything that came after. And what has come after? So you've seen a lot of success. I know you've been traveling around for both sci-fi and open source slash net neutrality type movements. What are you focused on the most today and what most worries you? So the thing that I'm, I'm really focused on in the project that I do at EFF, this, this European copyright thing is just a sideline. The thing that I work on is a project called Apollo 1201, and its goal is to kill all digital rights management in the world. So digital rights management is this like technologically bizarre idea that you can give someone a file and, and allow them to look at it on their computer, but somehow while they're looking at it, their computer will refuse to let them use it in ways that you disapprove of. And, you know, like I can actually think of lots of ways that would be really useful for stuff like privacy. It just doesn't work. And instead, what we end up with is this kind of Rube Goldberg, where we install some form of spyware on your computer, and then it tries to spy on you while you're using, you know, this, this file, while you're looking at this file that someone else has given you or running a program that someone else has given you. And that spyware, it's not visible to you. You can't find it in your process monitor. Its files are hidden from you, and you can't terminate it. It's designed not to be terminated by, by you. <laughs> And so that means that if anyone can figure out how to compromise that, they can run malicious code in ways that by design you can't detect or stop. And it, because it's a felony under uh, a Clinton-era copyright law, the, the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, Section 1201, to remove a copyright lock like this, firms have figured out that if they just design their product 
so that using it in a way that minimizes their profits and maximizes your benefit uh, means uh, bypassing digital rights management, that they can make it into a felony to use your property in ways that privilege you and your interests at the expense of their shareholders. And there isn't a company alive that wouldn't prefer that it be like a literal felony to use like third-party ink in your, in your inkjet or to take your product to a third-party service depot or to use third-party replacement parts or to install an app that allows you to do something for free that they charge extra money for or any of those other things that people do with their jailbroken devices. And so as things become increasingly smart, right, as the Internet of Things pervades everything, we're seeing this deployment of DRM as a kind of minimum viable skin of digital rights management, just enough to, to invoke Section 12.1 of the DMCA to make it a felony to, uh, to be in contempt of someone's business model. And this is not only bad for our property rights, you know, your property is that which you have the exclusive right to, to the exclusion of every other person in the universe, soul and despotic dominion over, as uh, Blackwell wrote in the 17th century, that's the definition you learn in law school. It's not only bad for your property rights, but there's also a cybersecurity dimension because the law is so sloppily drafted that it says that um, telling someone about a defect in a product that has digital rights management in it, if you explain in detail what that defect is and warn them about it, that you commit a potential felony liable to five years in prison and a $500,000 fine. And so all these companies that started out by adding DRM just because they wanted to monopolize their consumables or apps or, or, or um, parts or service, they have discovered, oh yeah, this also gives us a monopoly over who gets to criticize our products. And um, that means that the, the way that you discover that you have trusted and relied on a product that isn't trustworthy or reliable is that you get exploited. Someone actually figures out how to attack you with it or attack someone, you know, attack so many other people with it that it can no longer be denied. And then the company finally admits it. But the researchers who discover it, the, the kind of white hat researchers, the ones who aren't interested in exploiting it and just want to warn you, those researchers are silenced. And so, you know, for every reason, for distortion of markets, for the dignity of the right to own private property and use it as you see fit, for, you know, good cybersecurity policy, this is really important. You know, digital rights management has cropped up in insulin pumps and heart monitors and pacemakers and voting machines, and it's been used to stifle criticism in all those domains. We really can't afford to not know which of those devices are trustworthy and which ones aren't. It sounds like in a lot of ways we're moving towards the, the China social scoring system of losing privacy in all realms. Are you more worried on the, the corporate or the governmental side? I just think that that's a false dichotomy. You know, um, like, first of all, if you want uh, governments to regulate corporations well, we need to wean them off surveillance. So, you know, in, in 1989, at the peak of the former Soviet Union, uh, or the peak of the former East Germany, rather, the spy agency there, the Stasi, used one snitch for every 60 people in the country. And um, today, the NSA manages to spy on the whole planet by using one spy for every 10,000 people that they put under surveillance. And the way that they were able to affect that two and a half order of magnitude uh, productivity improvement over a mere generation was that they... Um, they rely on the private sector to do the spying for us. So if you look at how PRISM and Upstream and those other big NSA programs work, they are using the services, they are tapping into the services that we use voluntarily to harvest data on us. Same with location privacy and all those other mass surveillance issues that we're grappling with. And, you know, the, it's a bit like, you know, in the Cultural Revolution, the, the People's Liberation Army would haul away your dad and shoot him in the head for being a dissident, and then they'd send you the bill for the bullet. And, uh, and, and, you know, 
what we've got now is they spy on everything we do and, and put us to enormous risk, and then we pay the bill for it. And so if you expect that the private sector is going to rein in its surveillance, the only way it's going to do that is if the, the government makes some meaningful penalties, forces them to internalize the, the costs of surveillance, which are you know things like breaches that eventually turn into identity theft attacks uh, against users. And you know one of the things that's not well understood about breaches is that they're cumulative. So just because a company leaks some data that nobody could figure out how to weaponize today doesn't mean that tomorrow someone won't leak another database that can be merged with it and used to weaponize. So uh, you know, an example would be like you have the NIH or the NHS releasing uh, anonymized prescription data where they release which hospital and which doctor wrote a prescription and for what, but they just identify the patients with random numbers. And, and that's um, you know, that's a that's a pretty standard form of of uh, government data set for doing epidemiological research and doing large scale investigations and meta analysis of the the costs of uh, of the the costs of uh, effectiveness of different pharmaceutical interventions. But then someone comes along and dumps, say, Uber and all of Uber's trips, and you can see who went to the hospital on which day. And now you can merge the data about who went to the hospital when with what prescription medicine they're taking. And so those two databases, they combine to produce really potentially embarrassing or harmful disclosures, even though each one of them separately is actually pretty innocuous. And so if we want governments to go in and say, like, if you're going to store data, you're going to have to uh, anticipate that someday uh, there will be major statutory damages against you for a breach of that data. So that insurers start to force companies to, to buy sufficient insurance in order to, to cover it and, and raise their premiums accordingly, then we're going to have to get governments less addicted to the private sector as their major source of surveillance data. It's the big brother game. I know you've written a lot about it, Corey. I know you're incredibly busy and we don't have a lot, much, a lot more time left. So the one question that we always like to ask our guests is, what's one challenge or thing that you would want listeners to look into, take action on, et cetera? Well, if you're a European or if you know Europeans, go to saveyourinternet.eu. It's the one most important thing you can do right now. You know, this will have a major backlash on Americans. Unfortunately, Americans don't get a vote here, but every European should be talking to their MEP about this, going to their constituency offices and so on. And if you want to get bonus points, find three other Europeans. And this is a thing that you can do even if you're not European. Find three Europeans and send them to saveyourinternet.eu. There's literally nothing more important you can do between now and the 11th of September about internet freedom and the freedom of all of us to have public discourse. This is the Ponzi scheme to save the internet, guys. Corey, thanks yes. so much for coming on. Thank you. My pleasure. Best place for people to find you, Connect? Uh, I'm Dr. O on Twitter. I'm one of the editors of Boing Boing, boingboing.net. Um, my personal website is craphound.com. Craphound like uh, shit dog. Craphound.com. It's such a great name. And guys, you make sure to check out the books. We'll have links, et cetera, in the show notes. I know I've listened to a couple of them. Actually, some of your books are on YouTube. So I know you're not a fan of DRM. So I imagine that uh, anything, anything that brings people in is valuable. It's true. Thanks for coming on today, Corey. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Listener, before you go, if you like Fringe FM, consider making a tax-deductible donation to support our mission. Yes, you heard that right tax-deductible. Fringe FM is fiscally sponsored by a registered 501c3 nonprofit focused on advancing science worldwide. This means you can write off your donation for tax purposes and possibly even get your employer to match the donation, all of which would dramatically boost the level of good we can do in the world and the quality of the show that we can produce. To learn more about supporting Fringe FM and whether your gift would qualify to reduce your taxes, please visit fringe.fm give. If you care about our mission, please support our efforts. You are literally deciding whether or not we can continue and how much of an impact we can make. Again, that's fringe.fm give to learn more and support our cause.
Thank you. If you want more of Fringe FM, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or go to fringe.fm where you'll find tons of audio and video interviews with leaders in the fields of genetics, cryptocurrency, longevity, AI, space, VR, and much, much more. And you can follow me on Twitter at It's Matt Ward. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a quick review in iTunes to help more people discover Fringe FM.